Hello, and welcome to Central. I'm Ben Sloan, an ordained United Methodist pastor in the Western North Carolina Conference. The purpose of this podcast is to talk about issues that are central to life and Christianity. Well, at least usually. This time I want to talk about something that both is and isn't central to Christianity. It is central in how we practice Christianity nowadays. It isn't central in any real scriptural or historical sense. Today, I want to talk about marriage. As a pastor, I always enjoy being involved in weddings. But if I'm honest, I also feel like a bit of a fraud. After all, you've got the couple who the whole thing is about, and then you've got me standing up there in between them. What business do I have up there? And to top it off, I have the most lines. That doesn't seem right. Plus, most of what I do as a pastor, I do because I see that it's required of me in Scripture. I preside over communion because Jesus said we should continue to break bread and share the cup together. I preach because Jesus said to proclaim the good news for all to hear. But can you think of anywhere where Jesus says that pastors should go and preside over a wedding? Can you think of anywhere where a wedding service is laid out? You know, what to include, what to wear, what to do, etc. Or more broadly, can you think of any scripture about weddings or marriages at all? Most of the scripture we actually use in wedding ceremonies wasn't intended for that purpose at all. Take, for example, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have a gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing.
That's such a beautiful testament to the character of love. I understand why people use it in weddings, but all the same, I do feel a li little strange including it in a ceremony because I think associating it with weddings causes us to misunderstand the text, at least a little. 1 Corinthians 13 isn't about romantic love exclusively. It's about love in general. It's about my love for my daughters. It's about my love for my friends. And especially even, it should be about my love for my enemies. But by using 1 Corinthians 13 so, um, so frequently in weddings, are we actually distorting the meaning as people understand it? But if you aren't going to use 1 Corinthians 13, what else will you use? You're going to run into some similar problems. Sometimes I've wondered how people would respond to the biblical texts that are actually about marriage. Just for consistency's sake, let's look at some selections from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. That's just six chapters before the ode to love that we heard in 1 Corinthians 13. Here's Paul speaking again. I'm telling those who are single and widows that it's good for them to stay single like me. But if they can't control themselves, they should get married, because it's better to marry than to burn with passion. I don't have a command from the Lord about people who have never been married, but I'll give you my opinion as someone you can trust because of the Lord's mercy. So I think this advice is good because of the present crisis. Stay as you are. If you're married, don't get a divorce. If you are divorced, don't try and find a spouse. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And if someone who hasn't been married gets married, they haven't sinned. But married people will have a hard time, and I'm trying to spare you that. I want you to be free from concerns. A man who isn't married is concerned about the Lord's concerns, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the world's concerns, how he can please his wife. His attention is divided. A woman who isn't married or who's a virgin is concerned about the Lord's concerns so that she can be dedicated to God in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the world's concerns, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own advantage. It's not to restrict you, but rather to promote effective and consistent service to the Lord without distraction. How do you think folks would feel about having that read at their weddings? We don't usually think of marriage as a weakness, right? But here Paul is encouraging people to stay celibate, to stay single. He says, don't get married unless you can't help yourself. And to be fair, you have to understand that Paul thought the world as they knew it was about to end. He regarded any human attachments, especially marriage, as potential sources of pain as the world went through great trial and tribulation. We now know that Jesus' return was not as imminent as Paul expected. But even with that consideration, this is far from the celebration of marriage that you could fairly expect given the current religious involvement in weddings. And Paul is just one example. Most of the examples of marriage I see in Scripture, I think, are more examples of what not to do rather than what to do. Take Abraham, the father of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. 
did some wonderful things, but he was terrible to his wife, Sarah. The story of their marriage is an awful tangle of jealousy, fear, and domination. You can say that's just how things were in those days, but that doesn't change the fact that I don't want any part in a marriage that looks like Abraham's. When people talk about a biblical marriage, I think they really should clarify which type of biblical marriage they're referring to. I'm hoping they're not referring to the polygamy or the subservience. So if weddings aren't laid out in scripture, how did we get to elaborate church-involved weddings today? The ugly truth is that for much of human history, marriages were seen as a transfer of property. The wedding was a transfer of young women from her family of birth to her new husband. Oftentimes this was connected to, to the transfer of other goods, the bride price, the dowry, etc. A wedding was an economic activity of great significance to the community. And so someone was needed to document this transfer. That's why in the Middle Ages, priests became involved in weddings. Because they were often the only ones who could read and write. They would document the event, like a notary today, and gradually, over time, this led to the church's involvement in weddings, not just in uh, a logistical sense, but in a religious sense, too. So when I feel like a bit of a fraud up there as I'm officiating a wedding, it's also grounded in understanding the history and how I got to be up there. But for all that, I, for one, am married, happily married, and, and even beyond that, I'd say that my marriage is a means of grace. I say that it helps me to be the kind of person I want to be, and that I believe God's called me to be. Even though I feel like a bit of a fraud, I still officiate weddings because I do with all of my heart believe that we can experience an echo of divine love in our earthly relationships. When we're called joyfully to compassion and commitment and the upbuilding of another person, that is worth celebrating. And if someone asks me to be a part of that celebration, well, I will definitely do all I can to help affirm and support the couple. So for me, what I appreciate even more than the ceremony is the opportunity I have to be a part of premarital counseling with a couple prior to the wedding. That's a chance to try and help them get off to as good a footing as possible at the beginning of the marriage. And today, as a way of wrapping things up, I'd like to share just one piece of advice that I offer young couples that is founded in the ways that marriage has changed over time. As I said earlier, marriages were largely economic arrangements for much of human history. They weren't necessarily about love. They were about providing offspring to continue the family lineage, to help with the family business, to care for you when you're old age. Love would have been a great perk, but industriousness and fertility were really more the name of the game. This is rooted in what is known as Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Maslow recognized that there is an order in which we fulfill basic human needs. First, we see to physical needs. Physical safety, food, water, shelter, warmth, rest. Then, we see to psychological needs. Love and friendship. 
And once we have those, we look to our self-esteem and prestige, and finally self-actualization, or the realizing of our full creative potential. Maslow recognized that you don't look for friendship while you're in physical danger. You seek safety and security first, and then when you're safe, you might consider your need of friendship. For most of human history, we've struggled to fulfill those physical needs. And marriage played an essential part in getting ahead of that struggle. That's why marriages were an economic thing. As we've become more economically secure as a society on the whole, that's when we started to understand marriage in terms of love. And it's crucial to note that that shift did not happen in biblical times. That's why it's so hard to find scripture that speaks to marriage being about love. But I'd say that we've progressed even beyond that. Now we look at marriage as being about self-actualization. We ask the question, does my spouse complete me? Do, do they help me live up to my full potential? That can be a wonderful thing, but it also means that increasingly we're looking to one person to fulfill needs that were met by a wide range of people in our lives prior. Or quite frankly, that we looked for within ourselves. Is it healthy to look to our spouses for economic security, friendship, self-esteem, and fulfillment all together? Or would it be healthier to recognize that other relationships can sometimes fill some of those needs too? If you and your spouse do expect to meet every need for one another, my one word of advice would be to expect to get out what you put in. The problem with our high expectations for marriage come when we expect more from the marriage than we put into them. And that's why I think it's healthy and important for us not to lose sight of the ambivalence and complexity with which marriage is portrayed in the Bible. When we struggle in our own marriages, we can look to Scripture and recognize that um, even some really wonderful and excellent people struggled with this whole marriage thing too. Rather than just celebrate marriage or lift up an idealized vision of it, it's important for us to hear the voices of folks like Paul who were against marriage too. Okay, here are some questions for you. Do you think weddings should be religious in character? Do you think they should be civil or governmental matters? Or should we just do away with the institution of marriage altogether? How about this? If you had to preach a wedding, what scripture would you refer to or use in the service? And lastly, do you think that there is an ideal level of expectation we should carry into a marriage? I mean, is it okay for a marriage to be about economic security and be loveless? Should we all be friends with our spouses? Do we need to find fulfillment in the person we're married to? What do you think and why? That's all I have for today. Thank you again for joining me. 
Now receive this blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.